The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. If you don't mind, grab a Bible. Turn to John chapter 4. We're going to begin with verse 1. But before we begin... I'd like to pray just one more time, if you don't mind. Father, I thank you for this morning again. Uh, Jesus, we exalt you. We lift you up. We look to you. You're the author and the finisher of our faith. You are Lord and King this morning. And so, Jesus, I bow my heart. I bow my knee to you. And I pray, Lord, that you would feed your sheep that you administer as only you can minister by your Holy Spirit, by your word, Lord God. Father, I pray that you would meet the needs that are here this morning. Love on your people. Draw us closer to you. And I thank you, Lord, in advance for what you're going to do, Lord, and for what you've done also. We praise you. In your holy name, and all God's kids together can say, Amen. Now, in the 17th century, one of the greatest thinkers of all time, actually a gentleman who was a Christian by the name of Blaise Pascal, referring to our spiritual condition, he said something that I think is profound as we look at this morning's story uh, together. And I want to read a quote from Blaise Pascal. Here's what he said, and I quote, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. A God-shaped vacuum or a void. About 2,500 years earlier, King Solomon, the wisest man on the planet at the time, echoed the same concept in Ecclesiastes 3.11 when he says that God has put eternity into man's heart. God has put eternity into man's heart. In other words, Though his image in us is marred by sin, ultimately within every human soul, we have an awareness that there is something more than what this temporal world offers. There's something more. And as a result, when we are separated from God, Our sin-sick, rebellious hearts are constantly, even desperately, running after things to fill the place that is reserved in our hearts exclusively for our Creator. We can all testify to it here this morning. We're experts 
at building altars to false gods. We live in a society that is plagued by emptiness, haunted by the fear of being alone. Ravaged by restlessness, we're surrounded by an entire culture worshiping the false gods of money, pleasure, recognition, and materialism. The God-shaped void that Pascal refers to is on full display every day right here around us in Pinellas County, Florida. So in light of this, I want to submit this morning four biblical principles that are found in this wonderful story of the woman at the well that show us the way out, the way out of this endless cycle of emptiness and despair. Look at verse 1. Let's read together. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So the Pharisees hear of Jesus's rising stature, that he's his ministry's growing, Jesus wanting to avoid conflict. His time had yet to come. He leaves the area that he is in, which happens to be Judea, and he is heading up to Galilee. It says in verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus wearied, interesting, Jesus is 100% God, but also 100% human. So Jesus is wearied, it says, as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which we know would be noon. Now, the quickest route from Judea to Galilee was to go directly through Samaria. And the scriptures say that ultimately the gospel would start in Jerusalem, extend to Judea, and then to Samaria, etc., to the utmost parts of the world. So here's Jesus kind of walking that out. But it's interesting to note that pious Jews avoided Samaria like you and I would avoid the plague. They wouldn't step foot in Samaria. Instead, they would actually travel all the way around it in order to get to Galilee. And the reason is that they absolutely despised the Samaritans. Why? Because the Samaritans were racially and religiously mixed. They're the result of Assyrian captivity and intermarrying between Jews and pagans. So they had a hybrid racial identity, and they had a hybrid faith to boot. They took Judaism and kind of twisted it a little bit. 
They were considered impure on several counts by the Jewish people. They were despised. Yet look at verse 4 again. It says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Jesus understood the history here. He understood that typically Jews avoided Samaria. But here Jesus intentionally confronted and overcame years of racial hostility and prejudice in this one simple act. None of this was accidental. It was all in the providential plan of God. Jesus, you see, had a divine appointment. He had an appointment with a Samaritan woman. He chose to go through Samaria. He pursued the Samaritan woman at the well, knowing that eventually we would learn in the book of Acts, a great revival would break out in Samaria and several Samaritans would come to Jesus, would come to Christ. No doubt that this revival finds its genesis, its beginnings in this divine encounter at this well. He had to go through Samaria, not because it was quicker, but because there was a people who would need the gospel. He had to go through, which leads me to my first principle to remember when you are overwhelmed by spiritual emptiness, and maybe this is you this morning. Principle number one is this. God Almighty is in pursuit of you. He's pursuing you. Look at Luke 19.10. It says, for the Son of Man, referring to Jesus, came to do what? To seek and to save the lost. Look at Matthew 18.12, and you'll see this theme coming up repeatedly in the ministry and teachings of Christ. Here he's referring to the wayward soul. He's using an illustration. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Look at Genesis 3, verse 8. This always fascinated me. Again, referring to Adam and Eve after the fall in the Garden of Eden, it says they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, y'all know God knew where Adam and Eve were. After all, he's God. Here he's establishing the fact that he would pursue fallen mankind, and he has been pursuing us ever since the Garden of Eden. God is in pursuit. We think we're hiding, but he sees us. He chases us. He brought you here this morning. He brings others into our lives. Just think of your own experience. 
I can think of my own when I came to Christ. Everywhere I turned, there he was. Somebody representing him, something pointing me to him. There may be some this morning here who he's been pursuing for years. We sing a song in this church. I'll recite the lyrics. You might know the title. I'll tell you the title at the end. You'll recognize the lyrics, though, if you've been here for a bit. There's no shadow you won't light up. Mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, no lie you won't tear down coming after me. That song is Reckless Love. Little does this heartbroken, used and abused Samaritan woman know. But Jesus, the mender of broken hearts, is coming after her. Look at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Little does she know she's actually speaking to the God of Jacob. <laughs> Are you greater than Jacob? If she know, if she only knew. Let's look at the details in verse 7. It's interesting to note. It says, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. She came at noon, we learned earlier, which was uncommon. Typically, women would come in the morning in order to start their day and begin the different responsibilities they had. It was cooler in the morning. And when they got together early in the morning around the well from the town, they would socialize and they would kind of interact and hang out with each other just a little bit but not this woman. She comes at noon. She's all alone. Probably a social outcast. Living a life of quiet desperation. Yet, it says, Jesus said to her, Jesus said to her, it's very, very, very unusual for any Jewish person of this time to ask a favor from a Samaritan. They would never even think of it, not to mention by tradition, a rabbi would not speak with a woman in public. He wouldn't even speak with his own wife in public. But Jesus, he doesn't care 
about the social taboos of the day. You see, Jesus, he's on a mission, a love mission. Verse 8 says, the disciples had gone away into the city. Isn't it interesting? Sometimes, listen, sometimes he comes to you in a crowd. Sometimes, though, the Lord comes to you when you're all alone. You know what I'm talking about. Some of us do. This woman, she's all alone. Verse 9 shows us her response. How is it that you speak to me? She's surprised that Jesus is speaking to her. Let me ask you all a question. Do you expect him to speak to you? Are you surprised when he does? Some of you may feel like he's hiding from you. Some may feel like he's forgotten you. Some would feel that he's no longer speaking to you. But the Bible tells us that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, which brings us to principle number two. Not only does God pursue us, but he actually initiates the relationship. Even when you're all alone, cast aside by others, God speaks. He's constantly inviting us into fellowship. Look at Revelation 3.20. It says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Look at John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. In our discipleship group that we have, we looked into this, and this is God making contact with us. In the incarnation, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, We've seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Look at John 12, 32. And I, Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. The lifting up refers primarily to the cross. But also, of course, it's exalting to us, exalting and glorifying God, but primarily to the cross. So through the incarnation and through the cross of Christ, God has initiated. He's made contact. He's opened an opportunity up for us. It's amazing. Michael Card, I don't know if you all have ever heard of him. Anybody hear of Michael Card? 1980s, 90s, um, Christian musician. And he wrote some songs that are very powerful. I'm going to read some more lyrics just briefly. Here's a song he wrote called The Final Word. Listen to this. He spoke the incarnation, and then so was born a son. His final word was Jesus. I love that. He needed no other one. Spoke flesh and blood, 
so he could bleed and make a way divine. And so was born a baby who would die to make it mine. It's through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that God has spoken to us, inviting us to repent of our sins, turn by faith to him, and trust in the finished work of Jesus to save us. This morning, I believe God is calling. Let's continue. Verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Isn't it amazing that Jesus is not surprised or intimidated by her sin? Let me say it again. Isn't it amazing that Jesus is not surprised or intimidated by her sin, by your sin, by my sin? After five failed marriages, the woman had apparently just given up on marriage. And now she's living with a man she's not married to. But despite this, Jesus identifies the real need with the woman at the well. And it was not a relationship with a man, but a relationship with the living God. That was the real need. Her real need was that she had an unsatisfied spiritual thirst, which leads to our third principle in ending the cycle of, of emptiness that we see. Not only does God pursue us and initiate relationship with us, but God knows that you and I are born broken with a thirst that only he can satisfy. Thirst is a powerful thing. You should know that. There's an article, What It's Like to Die of Thirst. I quote Jeffrey Burns. He is the president of the National Kidney Foundation. He's a professor at the University of Penn. And here's what he's got to say. Thirst, as you probably know, is one of the most potent drives for behavior we have. It may be the most potent that we have, even more than hunger. Thirsty people are going to be miserable. If you're dying of thirst, you become desperate. You may even drink anything to alleviate the pain and the discomfort. Even if in the long term it poisons your body or prolongs your agony, 
Why? Because thirst can be absolutely consuming. But in verse 13, Jesus uses physical thirst to illustrate our lack of spiritual fulfillment when he says that everyone who drinks of this water, the natural water, will thirst again. It can't satisfy the ultimate thirst. It can't fill the void that exists. This was the situation with the Samaritan woman at the well. Five husbands living with a man now. It was almost impossible, by the way, in this culture for a woman to get a divorce. So she probably was possessed and passed around by various men. At some point, she may have been a young widow, but she definitely is a social outcast, rejected by her community, in hiding, choosing to distance herself from others. She's tired and jaded by life's experiences. She's emotionally exhausted. Absolutely alone in dying of a seemingly unquenchable spiritual thirst. She's dying. That is until she ran into this stranger at the well. Look at verse 20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Verse 24, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, I am he. Isn't it interesting that after all the discussion on emptiness and thirst, that we turn suddenly to the topic of worship. Interesting. It may look totally unrelated, but it actually has everything to do with breaking the cycle of emptiness. Let me begin by asking y'all a simple question and be real. Obviously, you can't answer it out loud. So in your own heart, in the sanctuary of your own heart, be honest and answer these questions, please. Question number one, who or what do you worship? Who or what do you worship? 
Now, right away, before we go any further, let me define that word worship as it appears multiple times in those verses we just read. When you look at the original language, it's fascinating what that word actually means. The word worship actually means to kiss the hand. It's like a dog licking a master's hand. It could also mean to kneel before or to physically prostrate oneself. It shows profound reverence. It is placing the greatest value or worth on someone or something. Placing the greatest value or worth on someone or something. It is not just a physical thing. We say often, well, we're coming to worship or I'm involved in worship and praise. You could have your hands lifted. You could be singing a song and not worshiping. Worship is a disposition of the heart. It starts here. Who's sitting on the throne in your heart? That's what worship is. It reveals itself. It manifests itself in our obedience. And when we gather together in worship, when we love each other, when we sing songs, when we serve the community, when we share our faith, when we go to work and work as unto the Lord, all of that is an expression of worship. But worship truly is a disposition of the heart. So let me ask a follow-up question. Not to get on y'all's nerves. Be real now. What's the thing or person you just could not live without? What is the thing or person that you just could not live without? In other words, what defines you? Is it your job? Is it your house? Is it your retirement account? You can take anything. Just don't touch my money. How about your spouse? Parents. What about your children? Young people, your social status? Your friends, your Facebook account, video games, all those things are fine in their proper place. But if the answer is anything other than Jesus, anything or anyone other than Jesus, You're attempting to fill the void in your heart with something that will never truly satisfy. So here's the fourth and final principle that leads to the ending of the cycle of emptiness in your life. And here it is. You want freedom? You must come to embrace the truth that only God can truly satisfy your need. 
Only God can satisfy your need. Only relationship. I'm talking about crazy love relationship with God. Not a passing religious kind of intellectual thing. I'm talking about absolutely embracing full, like your whole heart. I love you, Jesus. Abba, Father, I need you. I want you. Relationship with the Lord. Listen to what the scriptures say. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And by the way, hate and, and despise, actually it's a relation to the other. That's what, that's what that actually means. You cannot serve God and your boyfriend. Oh, did I read that wrong? I'm sorry. Cannot serve God and your social status. Cannot serve God, it says here, in money. There's a guy, obviously y'all are familiar with him, Solomon, King Solomon. He was king over Israel during what we consider to be the golden age of Israel. Solomon had everything. He had fame. He had money. He had prestige. He had relationships. He had adulation. I mean, this guy had everything, and he had it beyond anybody in this room's wildest imaginations. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the wisdom books. In Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, with regard to looking over his life, this is what he says. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That word vanity actually means vapor, puff, a puff of smoke. Look at Ecclesiastes 2.11. When I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Ecclesiastes 12.1, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. And I love Ecclesiastes 12.13. He says, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion. This is from the man who had it all. He's summing up life now. What is actually fulfilling? What is actually meaningful in life? What matters? Here's what he says. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. You want to find your identity? You want to find ultimate purpose? That ache in your soul, you want it satisfied? He says, fear God, come into relationship with the Lord. I'm going to close, and then the worship team is going to come with just one verse. And this is the Apostle Paul. Philippians 4.11 is probably up on the screen. It says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to do what? To be content, which is the opposite of restlessness. It's the opposite of emptiness. Paul said, I've learned to be satisfied. I've learned this. 
in all things. It says, I know how to be brought low, and he did. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Basically, he's saying, look, I've experienced the highs and the lows of life. And here's the secret to being ultimately fulfilled, satisfied. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. How can I be content? I can be content through him, through Jesus. Jesus is my portion. He is my pursuit. He is the source of my satisfaction. Only he fills my thirst. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming to him. So in summary, if you are empty this morning, thirsting for more, remember that God is in pursuit of you that he has initiated the relationship he desires for you to have with him by sending his son, Jesus. Know that he is aware that you are thirsty and that the only true way to satisfy that thirst is to forsake your idols and to run into the arms of your Savior. That's exactly what the woman at the well did and she went out. And she brought others to taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's bow our heads. Lord. Lord, we quiet ourselves before you. Thank you, Lord, for your word. You're amazing. Pursuit of us. I pray again that you would pour out your Holy Spirit to do surgery in our hearts, in our minds. Renew us. Convince, convict. Draw us and reveal. Draw us to Jesus. Father, for our church, God, I pray that you would uh, plant in us individually and collectively just a genuine passion for you, for you, for you, Jesus. Lord, if there's anybody here within the sound of my voice that has yet to receive you, 
maybe through this morning you've been speaking to them. I pray, God, for that miracle, that miracle of salvation. God, for you to work again, Lord, to save, Lord God, to glorify yourself, but to save, Lord God, those who need you this morning. And if you're here this morning and you are in need of Jesus, during our worship time and after service out, we invite you to you, you're, feel free to come. We'll pray for you. There'll be people here that are available to pray with you and for you. We don't want anyone to leave this morning um, without the opportunity. If you're coming and you're recognizing your need without having somebody pray with you, that is ultimately why we exist here. We exist for Jesus and for his mission and his ministry. And so know that you are welcome. You are loved. We invite you to come and be prayed over. We invite you to come to our Savior who satisfies like no one else, like nothing else ever could. Maybe you're a believer and you're dry. You are dry. Here's the truth. You can find refreshing as well, renewing as well by just running into the arms of Jesus. Just coming to the Father through the Son and saying, Lord, I just lay myself afresh anew before you. Fill me with your presence. Heal my broken heart. Renew, light the light in me again. Restore to me, like the psalmist said, the joy of thy salvation. You're invited as well. Let's all stand, please, as we worship the Lord. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.